Okay, let's pray. Well, thank you for just reminding that song, Lord, has, that uh, the, the celebration as we go down to the river, Lord. I think of the, think of the, the river in Revelation, Lord, that talks about the, 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 the place where, that, that flows from, from your throne. That, that's the river we want to really experience, Lord. I pray for the young ones, Lord, as they uh, hear friends, friends of Jesus, as they commune with you, as they learn from their instructors, as they're taught, they will learn more and more what it means to know you, to walk with you, to love each other, and to meditate on the Word of God, that they might experience that river one day. Lord, as we remain in the sanctuary, Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Give us ears to hear what you have to say, not from me, but from you, from your Word, Lord, as, as we rightly, hopefully, divide your Word so the people of God might be encouraged and challenged. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Bye-bye. Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock service. We're in a, a, a preaching series where we continue to talk about Scripture, the, the, to, to try to gain a, a confidence in Scripture, a living word, eternal word. Um, the purpose is, is to, that we would have a deeper appreciation for what God has given us, the Word of God, a greater confidence, a greater understanding of why we can trust it. That's our goal. And, and uh, we want you to have a strong view of Scripture because Scripture points not to itself, but to Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. There was a time when people who had a very strong view of Scripture, um, a strong view of the gospel, were called evangelical because the word evangel is the word for gospel, the evangel, the gospel. Um, that word evangelical has taken on a whole new meaning, hasn't it now? It's kind of, I used to want to call myself an evangelical because it meant I believed in the gospel. But now that word means you're, 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 you're ultra right wing and you're, and you're, you're kind of anti. That, that's the, the connotation that some people give that word now more sociological context, and so we want to run from that word. And unfortunately, that word has been co-opted. It's a good word, actually. Um, but I want to talk about the fact that things are changing. Things are changing in our country. And what do we do about that? There's a shifting landscape in our country. Um, biblical Christianity has, by and large, been rejected by our country. I hope you understand that. That there are less people going to church. There's less people worshiping Jesus. There's less people who, who are diving into the word of God and believing it and trusting Christ who's, who's there. You also need to know, understand that, that secular humanism, which came into the void for many people, they found that to be empty and insufficient as well. A secular humanistic approach. It's empty. It's irrelevant for many people. Into that void left by... Christianity and, and humanism, many believe there's a new kind of spirituality that is moving in, a new kind of spirituality. Peter Jones, Modern Reformation Magazine, said this, many believe that Christianity is a, as a dominant social force is spent and that its great opponent, secular, secular humanism, is, is in a free-for-all as well. Our culture is reaching a tipping point of momentous implications where the new spirituality, quote-unquote, May, re, may well represent the next phase of the faith and practice of modern autonomous humanity, whose goal is nothing less than, than the construction of a new Sodom and Babel, a new spirituality. But in actuality, it's not new. It's old. It's the same old spirituality that the, the apostles were, were, were preaching against in the context of, of, the, of the first century, of Gnosticism, this beginnings of the Gnostic a heresy which was birth, and, and, and it, it was the thought of uh, uh, 
mystical experiences and, and, and higher mystical thinking, which was a rejection of the historic facts of the gospel of Christ. The orthodox faith, the faith of Scripture, did not come from the imaginations and thoughts of mankind. They came because God has spoken in revelation. He's revealed to us in Scripture. And, and, we, and, and we can build our life on the, 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 the myths and the imaginations of mankind, or we can build our life on what God has said in Scripture. There's really only two ways to build a life. In fact, Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 7 about that. He said there were t- there, there, on, on, on the beach side, there were two, two houses. One was on, on a solid foundation, and one was on a shaky foundation, a sand foundation. And when the, when the storm came against both of them, the one that was on the shaky foundation, it crumbled. It didn't stand because it didn't have a good foundation. But the one that was founded on the rock, it stood the test, of the, the, the storms and the winds that came because it was founded on a, on a, on a rock foundation. And he said, and he said, that foundation is his words. That's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. The word of God. Now, with all that as, as introduction, let's begin to, to look at the scripture. Our passage today is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. The second letter of, of the apostle Peter. We have it on the overhead to my left, your right. Let's listen to the ESV translation of God's word. <clears throat> For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to, to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God bless the reading and hearing of his word. God Almighty has given us, through imperfect vessels, his perfect, infallible word. Through, per, through imperfect people, we have a perfect word. My title is God's Trustworthy Prophetic Word. God's Trustworthy Prophetic Word. Second Peter. Now, first and second Peter, we had a Sunday school class on, on, on first and second Peter today. Uh, one commentator, Hybert, has said about the two books, in, in first Peter, the emphasis is on Christian suffering inflicted by a hostile world. In 2 Peter, the stress is on the dangers arising from apostasy within the church. The first is an exhortation to endurance and loyalty to Christ amid undeserved opposition. The second is an appeal for loyalty to Christ in the midst of subtle heresy. 1 Peter instructs believers how to react to their external enemies, while the second epistle strengthens believers to resist the internal adversaries of the truth. The first inculcates hope amid suffering, the second accentuates the need of full knowledge as a safeguard against vicious error. And thus the pertinent message of First Peter to persecuted believers is supplemented by the equally apt warning against prevalent apostasy in Second Peter. So you get the sense that First Peter is more about the external issues and Second Peter is about the internal crisis in the church. Second Peter. There's a lot about the second coming in this book, but in this first chapter he's, he's setting them up. It, it, the, I want to look at three things in this chapter. 
First is the myths of man. Then the, I, want to, I want to talk about um, the voice of the Father. Then I want to talk about the, the word of the prophets. First, the myths of man. This is from verse 16. We do not follow, Peter says, cleverly devised myths. We, as Peter and the other apostles who are witnesses to the New Testament, cleverly devised myths. Bloom, the commentator, says it's likely that the false teachers claimed that the incarnation, the, in, the resurrection, and the coming kingdom the apostles spoke about were only cleverly invented stories, fables about the gods, myths, that they were made up stories. They didn't really happen, weren't historic. In contrast to myth and fable, we have certain history. Our faith is based on the explanation of events, revelatory events, historical events communicated to us by the prophets and apostles who were proved by the Lord himself. I believe that our contemporary culture, our contemporary world, is founded upon myths also. Certain myths. I want to unpack some of the myths that we live in. Some of the myths that are all around us. It's in the very air that we breathe. This is going to step on your toes, my toes, everybody's toes. Four, four and there's lots more, but here are four myths that we need to address as God's people in this generation. First is the myth of personal success. The myth of personal success. You know the story that, that, that Success comes by first getting a good education and that will lead you to a good job. And then a good job will lead you to, to just have, have a nice home in the suburbs and be successful. Maybe even rich, some of you. And that's, the, and that's the plan, right? The myth of personal success. And look, I've raised kids. I want, I want my kids to be successful. I don't want them to, to suffer. I don't want to suffer. Everybody wants things to be easy. But you know what? That's not promised to everyone. There are many uncomfortable things in this life, amen? You, you've experienced it, I've experienced it. And what happens when it's not working? When we get stressed, when we get in debt, when we can't find a job, can't find the spouse we want, can't have, whatever the can't is, what, how do you deal with that? Because that's life. That's life. What happens for many of us who, who, who don't experience that success is, is escapism. And we're seeing that in our world today, aren't we? The, the increase in partying and drinking. And I was thinking about, about drugs and particularly marijuana, weed, how state by state begins with medicinal and then it becomes, well, recreational, why not? The, 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 sl the slippery slope. Where does it begin? It begins with buying into the dream and, and, and wanting to escape because it's not working for you. It's just not working. The, dream, the, per, the, the myth of personal success, you see, that, see that, 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 the, the, the foundation is like a foundation with Swiss cheese. It's, it's soft and it's full of holes. We can't build our life on that kind of foundation. It's a myth. Second myth, the myth of historical progress. We have the false notion that if we can just get everybody smarter, get everybody educated, the world will be a better place. Don't we have that feeling? That the problem is that people just don't know enough. I think about, um, I guess, John Lennon, who, who talked about a utopia in his song, Imagine. Imagine all the people living for the world. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only skies. Imagine all the people living life in peace. And we think that the pathway to that peace is that everybody was just a lot smarter. You see, utopia would come because we all know that war is stupid. We all know that poverty is stupid. 
Knowledge is the answer, right? If we could just educate everybody, we could solve the problems. John, John Lennon needs to hear the words of another lyricist named Michael Jackson who's, who forgot that there's a man in the mirror that you've got to deal with. The problem isn't our head. The problem is our hearts. With all of our advanced knowledge, without debate, mankind is much smarter. But better? That's easily challenged. The third myth is the myth of personal ownership. Now, when I say that, you're probably thinking I'm thinking about capitalism, and that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm not talking about private property, personal ownership. I'm talking about the fact that I am taught that I belong to me. I am the captain of my fate. I am the creator of my destiny. This rejects the biblical concept of being a steward or manager of that which belongs to someone else. I didn't create myself. God created me, used my parents, and I am accountable ultimately to the God who created me. And that is true about each one of us. No, we're taught that I do with my body what I want to do with my body. God says you belong to me. And in Christ, you know what God also says? You have been bought with a price. Glorify me with that body. You've been bought twice if you're Christian. You belong to God twice. Double ownership. And in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're married, it says this. If, you've, if you have committed yourself in covenant marriage to a spouse. When, I, when, I, when, I, when Terry and I got married, here's what I said. I now belong to you. 1 Corinthians 7 and 4. And she belongs to me. The myth that we own ourselves, we are not owners. We are stewards, and stewards give an account to the owner. And the fourth myth, the myth of universal, eternal bliss for everybody. It's a subtle, but it's there. The notion that all of us are entitled to a pleasant afterlife. And as spirituality gets reawakened in our culture, there's this assumption that God, the, the God or the, the goddess who will meet us at death will say it is well with your soul for everybody. That's an assumption. He or she is super benevolent. No matter how we've lived or what we've believed, there's a pleasant afterlife for each one of us. Nobody at all hints that just maybe there is justice in the universe, divine justice, that must be paid. And if we don't trust in Jesus, who died on the cross, to take care of our justice, justice will be meted out. See, the uneducated writers of the old Negro spirituals understood this fact. They saying that everybody that's talking about heaven ain't going there. Many of us contemporary folk with all kinds of titles before our names and, and letters after our names could learn a lot from the so-called uneducated Negro spiritual writers because it is still true according to God's word. Now let me pause. Is this you? Yes, this is you. Is this me? Yes, this is me. This is our story. We, we swim in this. We swim with, in, in, in embracing in subtle ways these myths, don't we? But my question is, have, have, you, have, you, have you, first of all, followed Jesus? 
Have you decided you want to follow Jesus? Or are you still following the many myths of this world? Those assumptions that, that you received from this culture. Peter exhorts us, challenges us, warns us, don't follow cleverly devised myths. They're a dead end street. If, if you live on the west side like me, you always laugh when you get on I-70, you're coming towards town, you pass through um, the, the 695 Beltway, and, and then like a mile later, there's, it's called the park and ride, but it used to not be a park and ride. It used to just be a dead end. The interstate just kind of stopped. Now you can make them, you can do some things there. It's kind of funny. I mean, the interstate, which actually begins in Colorado somewhere, it just goes, but you get to Baltimore and it stops. <laughs> Following <laughs> cleverly devised myths is a dead end. It's like I-70, the west side of Baltimore. Goes nowhere. The good news is, there's always a ramp. There's always an off-ramp. You can always repent and turn and come to Jesus Christ and live a life following him. See, these myths haven't just affected the world out there. These myths affect each one of us. And it's rendered a church, it's produced a church that is weak, powerless, fearful, compromising, worldly, confused about what is right and what is wrong, confused about truth, and that no longer feels the weight of the responsibility that God gave us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Cleverly devise myths. Reject the myths. Embrace the perfect word of God. Come to Jesus who said, come to me, learn of me, find rest to your souls in me. That's his promise, Matthew 11. He will bring wisdom in the midst of the confusion that's all around us. The midst of man. The second thing I just want to see is verses 17 to 18, the voice of the Father. Voice, re reject the myths. Listen to the voice. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, Peter says, heard this very voice born from heaven. The we again refers to the, him and the apostles. He and several other apostles were on that mountain. Peter will discuss what they give us, not what we don't, shouldn't, they didn't give us, which was myths. But, but events, historic events in, face, in space and time, they come to us from those witnesses. They recorded the events of Jesus' ministry, the events of the resurrection occurrences and, and, and all those things. And unlike many other systems of religion, the Christian faith is grounded in historic truth. The apostles are credible witnesses to the truth. But for instance, the resurrection, they weren't, they weren't waiting for it. They were, they were astonished when it happened. They were credible Witnesses. First John chapter 1 talks about the fact that they, they, they were, they're credible witnesses. John says, which we heard, which is seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands. Talk about the, the, Jesus, the body of Jesus, this resurrected body, who they saw die, who was now alive. They couldn't get beyond it. So therefore we proclaim to you, you may have fellowship with us, and fellowship with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Voice of the Father. There are three times in the Gospels where there's a heavenly voice that we can discern. I'm sure quite often Jesus heard the voice of Joseph, Mary's husband, and Joseph, his adoptive father. But three times in the Gospels, Jesus heard the voice of the majestic glory, the eternal Father. 
the one who, along with the Holy Spirit, he had willingly separated himself from at Bethlehem. First time, the voice was heard at his baptism when Jesus was baptized. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 to 22. They heard a voice. In fact, not just him, the, the, the crowds heard a voice. The voice was also heard on the mountain of transfiguration, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Not everybody, that was more private. Several people were there. The third time was in John chapter 12. This is uh, during, right, right after the, the uh, triumphal entry, during Holy Week. Jesus was troubled. It says in John 12, I'll read this one, John 27. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. That seems to be a little more private, just for Jesus. But that's the third time. But the text here, look at verse 18. We heard this voice. We were with him on the holy mountain. This pinpoints his force, doesn't it? Doesn't it? The holy mountain. He's obviously referring to the, 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 the second incident in Luke 9. The mountain of transfiguration. Despite uh, tradition, I believe that was Mount Hermon, north of the north, the highest peak in Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee. On that holy mountain, Jesus' glorified splendor was witnessed. We heard the scripture reading of that experience. Three, the inner circle of the disciples were there: Peter, James, and John. And there were also two other people there, Old Testament figures: Moses, Elijah. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament representatives here. The honor and, and glory received. Um, Bloom says, the honor is the public acknowledgement of his sonship, and the glory is the transfiguration of the, the humiliated son into his glorious splendor. The scene showed Jesus as the Messiah and was a preview of Jesus' glory as king. His glory, his brilliance manifested before them. And again, you heard in the scripture reading that, that Peter wanted to linger there on that mountain, have extended fellowship with Moses and Elijah. Hey, let's, 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 let's all three, let's have a place for all three. You can have, have some fellowship. Let's, let's, let's have a great time of fellowship. Can you blame them? Think about it. <laughs> how often are you going to go up to the mountain with Jesus and have Old Testament figures become right there in front of you as well? I mean, that's a, that's a mighty experience. And Peter said, hey, let's, let's, let's keep this going. I understand that. I think we understand, Peter. Um, but no, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't what was to be. The mountain was a place of the glorious vision, the voice of the Father, but there were things going on in the valley. The valley, the apostles, the other apostles, were experiencing failure. There was a boy in need. Matthew says he had epileptic seizures, and they couldn't, do, they couldn't deal with this boy. So when, they, when Jesus and the other disciples come out down from the mountain, they say, Jesus, help us. In fact, the, the boy's father hear the voice of the Father saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. That's a great prayer for a parent, isn't it? Lord, have mercy on my child. It's a great prayer. Simple prayer. Every mother and father should pray that prayer. Have mercy, Lord, on me and on my family. That little boy heard the Father's voice pleading for him, his health. Jesus heard the Father's voice saying, this, this is my son. Listen to him, to the others. The voice of a father. You know, my father passed away nine years ago, 2007. Some of you had that experience of losing a mother or father 
And yet you can still hear their voice in your head. You can still hear things they said. Things they said that were encouraging, that were challenging, that were hard, that were, that were a blessing. I remember one of the last conversations that I had with my dad. He was over, I don't remember what the celebration was. It might have been Mother's Day or something, but um, we were having a conversation. I don't know how we got into the conversation. We started talking about scripture and, you know, Bible study and things like that. And uh, he said over the years, he had come to begin to understand that when Paul talked, Apostle Paul talked about the Jews and the Gentiles uh, being together in one church, that there, there may be implications for the church in America. And he said, he said, I'm not sure that God ever intended for black and white to really have separate churches. Now, that sounds simple to us because we experience it every week. But my dad, you see, was a, was a, was a, was a child of the Jim Crow South. And the idea of worshiping with white people was, just wasn't what you did. I'm sorry. But slowly, through his years of studying the Word and teaching the Word, he, he began to understand that. And he, and he shared that kind of in a, in a, in a matter-of-fact way as we were discussing something. And, 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 and I, I've thought about that many times because I remember when I first left an all-black church to, work, to become one of the pastors here, not an all-black church, there was a lot of head-scratching. What you doing there, boy? It just didn't, it didn't fit. It didn't seem right. Why do why you want to pastor white folk? Can I, can I talk like that? <laughs> but he was starting to see it. Because scripture says that Jews and Gentiles worship together in one body, with one voice, glorifying God. That was one of the last conversations I had with my dad. There was, there was, a, lot, there was a lot of blessing there. He was, in one sense, he was affirming what I was doing here at faith. The powerful voice of a mother or father. Verbal blessing from parents are very powerful, and they're very precious. If you know that because you're a child, if you're a parent, do that. Bless your children, verbally and in many ways. One of the scariest things that happens to me now is when one of my kids says, Dad, remember when you said such and such and such and such? And I'll say, no, I don't remember ever saying that. Well, you said it. That's scary. Because some of those things were good things and some of them weren't good things. But the, the voice of a father, of a mother, of a parent, very powerful. But the voice of this father of the mountain, let's, listen, let's watch carefully. The father voice, as Peter was saying, okay, we have Elijah and Moses, and let's have fellowship, because here are these great Old Testament authors. The father's voice to, G, to, to, to Peter and James and John is, this is my beloved son. This is not just Moses. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. You know, there are a lot of, voice, a lot of spiritual voices that want to talk about God. But all those voices reminding us, commanding us, pleading us to listen to Jesus. That's the question in our day. That is the question in our day. God, the Father, and the Spirit have a voice. They want us to hear that voice, and that voice tells us to listen to the voice of the Son. It's the voice of Jesus and the messages of Jesus that are authoritative. Are you listening? Are you in a relationship with Jesus that's characterized by reading and heeding his word? The last point in the passage is the last three verses, verses 19 to 21, the word of the prophets. We can trust it. The words of the prophets, we can trust it. And Verse 19, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. 
Other translations, more certain, more sure, more reliable. That's the idea. More reliable even than the things that they saw on the mountain and even all the other things that Peter experienced in three years of walking with Jesus. The scriptures are more reliable, more fully confirmed. It's a profound statement, folks. It really is. Holy scriptures are divine truth, and they're real. Now, he's not saying that his experiences are invalid. He's not saying that the experience he had of seeing Jesus, meeting with Jesus, walking with Jesus was invalid. No, he's saying that the word that we have is even more valid and confirming for us who didn't see that like he did. We do well to pay attention to it. In verse 20, he says, um, there's, the scriptures are, there's no private interpretation. That's a, not a very helpful translation. It's very helpful because I, I think what he's saying, all, all, all the Old Testament, by the way, was, was prophetic in one sense. Uh, so that's why it's called um, no prophecy of scripture. Because it all pointed to the age of Messiah, the, the age of Jesus. The, the, all the Old Testament pointed, was moving towards that trajectory where Jesus and Messiah would come. So all Old Testament scripture, in one sense, is prophecy. But he's talking about all the Old Testament writers, you know, Moses and David and Jeremiah and Daniel, all of them, uh, that they didn't give us just their own personal thoughts and insights. That's what, that's what Peter's getting at. They were giving us the word of God. And Peter restates what he means very clearly in verse 21. See, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the how. Scripture was produced. The scholars tell us that we should understand the phrase carried along by the Holy Spirit, similar to the way that the wind carries along or guides or pushes a sailboat across the sea, across the lake, a certain direction, a certain speed. That analogy, the sail is simply being passive, responding to the force that's coming upon it. We believe the scripture writers were not totally passive. In fact, they're quite Engaged, quite, quite active, yet uh, they're accomplishing the very purpose of God, accurately putting down as a final product scripture, not man's thoughts and will. The prophets and the apostles were often very aware, by the way, of their authority and the special anointing they had from God. Here's two examples. One is from the Old Testament. David, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 2 and 3. Listen to what David said. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. David is not saying, I don't know if what I have to say is, has any authority. He's saying, God is speaking through me. That's David. New Testament, Paul. Paul also seemed to be quite aware that he was writing things that were on par with the Old Testament revelation. 1 Corinthians 14 is a passage about worship. But in that passage, Paul's trying to straighten out some things. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 14, 36 to 38. Paul says, was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. I think he thinks he has authority there. <laughs> if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul comes with authority because he knows that he's writing with the authority of God. He's writing what's going to become scripture. He knows that. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an awesome awareness of that. God gave him that confidence. And the, the Corinthians needed that. And, you know, we need that to know that what Paul has written in scripture is for us. It wasn't just from Paul. 
Peter believes that the scriptures have been passed down accurately through the ages to him, and they're trustworthy. They accurately pass to, on to us the mind and the will of God. Bloom says that it was not through a process of dictation, nor through ecstasy, that the writings of scripture spoke, but through the control of the Spirit of God. There are two things at work here. Just think about it. Two things are at work, two important things. One, God's desire, his desire to give us a clear revelation. And secondly, God's ability and power to do that, to give us a clear revelation. God has done that. He has willed it, and he has done it. Back up to verse 19. He, he says, pay attention. Pay attention to this revelation. Pay attention to this word. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The morning star. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The morning star. The, the bright star of the morning sky. Venus is what, I understand what that morning star is. Jesus says, I am that bright and morning star that shines through the dark place. In several ways, Jesus shines through the dark place. Here's one. The first way is, is our dark hearts. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. We, we're in darkness until we have the word of God giving us a, the, the right way to go. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. But also there's allusion here to, to other things. And, 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 uh, Jesus will bring light to a dark world when he returns to make things right. There's an allusion here to the second coming of Christ, which is a very prominent issue in the book of 2 Peter. The darkness of our world. Um, Romans chapter 13. Paul says, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when you first believed. Salvation, the, the, the final part of salvation, glorification. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the arm of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and, orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Darkness. Darwin MacArthur says that the, the, the imagery here of, 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 the, of the light shining is, is the image of, of, of kind of a night light. <laughs> you know, when it's night and, and it's nighttime and dark and, and, and you, you want to see something, you get a, a battery, a little a battery operated light or something, so you can see where you're going. You've had that experience, I'm sure. You've been, you ever, ever been in a power failure in your house? It's just dark. You've got to have a little light. That little light's helpful, isn't it? Very helpful. <laughs> Keeps from bumping into things. But, but, but basically, you're still in darkness until the light comes on. Well, one of the images, imageries that Peter has here is that this age in which we're living is a dark age. And in the midst of a dark age, we need a little bit of light, and that light is the Word of God. That light is the Word of God, and it's a lamp to our feet. It's a guide. But someday, someday, the, the full light is going to come. The morning star is going to come when Jesus returns... And, and, and we will have not just a little light, we'll have the light, the one who's the light of the world. And when he comes, all will be glorious, all will be blessing for God's people. An accurate reading of Scripture always pushes us to Jesus, who is the light of the world, the morning star. And until he comes again to set all things right, we have a perfect word reminding us of some very important things, reminding us that God is fighting for us, pushing back the darkness, 
lighting up the kingdom. It cannot be shaken, as we sang earlier. In the name of Jesus, enemies will be defeated. We can shout it out, shout it out. Arthur Pink says this, Christianity is a religion of a book. Christianity is based upon the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture, upon the foundation of the divine inspiration of the Bible stands or falls, the entire edifice of Christian truth. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11.3. Surrender the dogma of verbal inspiration and you're left like the rudderless ship on a stormy sea, at the mercy of every wind that blows. Deny that the Bible is, without any qualification, the very word of God, and you're left without any ultimate standard of measurement and without supreme so what are we saying? What are we saying? Trust your Bibles. We need to be alert to the many myths and isms that are out there. Jehovah's Witness and Mormons and Scientology and Black Hebrewism and the Nation of Islam and Oneness theologies that are new, the new spiritual. We need to be alert to all those kind of isms and also those myths that we looked at which undergird even the, the, total, the, the, the culture in which we live. How do we recognize the truth? How do we recognize those myths? How do we, how do we navigate this? Know your Bible. You can trust your Bible. Know your Bible. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Listen to your Bible. Meditate on it. Discuss your Bible. Ask Jesus for enlightenment. Why? Why so much attention to a book written long ago? Because despite imperfect human authors, our perfect God has given us a perfect that's why. And the voice of the Father reminds us that we need to listen to him if we're to find what we're looking for in this life. One of the more, one of the more important things that Jesus said is three very important words, three words that we need to have delved into our hearts each day and into our minds. Words are simply, it is finished. It is is finished. Hopefully in your life you've come to the place where you've embraced that word, the words that Jesus said on the cross. The Holy Spirit convicting you that yes, I'm a lost sinner. There's nothing I can do about it. I cast myself on the mercy of God and, and I hear that he transferred my sin upon himself on the cross at Calvary. He experienced the suffering and the humiliation that I deserve. He experienced the shame that I deserved and the guilt was given to him. But right before he died, there were those three words, it is finished, that the, that the penalty was paid in full. Listen, when, when, when your enemies, your former friends tell you you're no good, just, just say, that. yeah, maybe I'm not, but you know what? It is finished. When Satan comes and tries to tell you things that, that, that are probably true about you, you know, that that all the things that, that are happening in your life, you know, yes, a lot of bad things happen in your life. And, you know, he says, those things are just confirming that God really doesn't love you. You know, and then, and then like Job's wife, you know, says, curse God and die. When Satan does those kind of things, and you hear the voice of Satan, just remember the three words, it is finished. When the voice is maybe the voice of your mama, or the voice of your daddy, or, your, or, or someone that you cared a lot about, and all you hear is you're no good and you'll never amount to anything. And Why, why? The Holy Spirit wants you to listen to Jesus who said what? It is finished. All that stuff, yeah, I'm not what I, what I, what I ought to be. 
but I'm not what I'm going to be because Jesus died for me. The Father urges us all to listen to the good news of Christ. Don't listen to the other voices. They'll wear you down. They'll tear you down. They'll discourage you. They'll defeat you. The lyricist says, I hear the voice of Jesus say, come to me and rest. Lay down, my weary one, lay down your head upon my breast. I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. Let's pray. Lord, your word is settled in heaven, it says. You've given it to us to read it, to study it, to embrace it, to believe it, to share it. I want to pray for anyone here, Lord, who's never come to the settled conviction that you have come to us through Holy Scripture, that because we can have life eternal and peace now and forever because of the Christ who's communicated in the Holy Bible. I pray you would work that work of conviction in their lives that they might have a settled joy. For, 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 for us who have made that commitment at some point in our lives, Lord, may we continually walk with you and follow you, and may we be alert to the myths that are around us that seek to, to, to discourage us, that seek to, to water down what you have clearly said in your word. May we be followers of Jesus, knowing that in following him, life eternal. But seal this word in our, in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, let's close.